Welcome to the Disconnection Podcast. My name is Ben Haramadi, and I'm here with Kyle Nielsen, and we're your hosts for today's show. During this episode at Disconnection, we'll be speaking to Sydney Zhao. So, Sydney, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. We're glad to have you on the show today. Sydney's our friend. We've known her for many years. She is an editor at MixMag. Am I right? Uh, I'm the U.S. digital content editor. And what does that entail exactly? Um, so it's a lot of strategizing our U.S. Mm-hmm. content, um, video production, basically designing the style of anything you see, like visually as opposed to read editorially, um, and like creative strategy for our partnerships and stuff like that. That sounds awesome. And uh, what uh, what sparked your interest in um, getting into this kind of field? Did you always want to work for MixMag? Have you always? I know we've been going to raves together since we were, what were we, freaking children in high school, almost middle school. We've known each yeah. other. And uh, did that spark the, the light that made you want to work in this industry? Yeah, well, I mean, I was always really passionate about electronic music and the culture and the scene of it. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was younger, I really didn't imagine myself having a career in it. Um, but as I got older and it kind of came, became more of like a passion as opposed to just going out, I really thought um, it would be a good thing, a good field to work in. So. Is that what you studied when you were in college? No, so I studied telecommunications with a concentration in government surveillance in college. Um, Is that like working for the CIA, like, you know, beginning stages? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it has nothing to do with what I do now. Um, (laughs) It doesn't sound like it. But it was like, it was just an interesting topic. Um, And there's like, there's a lot of like conspiracy theories and like things about the NSA and like Snowden and Do you have any big conspiracy theories that you believe in? Um, not really, but I am incredibly weary of AI and like the future of technology. I think there's a good reason to be. I was thinking uh, not too long ago about how, uh, have you seen the movie, um, uh, not, no, what is it? Uh, Terminator? No, no, where they come down uh, and it's... It, War it was of the recent- Worlds? No, it was a recent movie. Independence Day 2. We can cut this part. What is the recent, what is, Corey, help me out too. What is the recent movie where they come down and it looks like a an egg or a seed? That was Infinity War. No. Um, that, was, that was where the, it was, the crawlers it was not, were coming out of. It was not a... It wasn't Aliens? A, Arrival. Ah, uh, okay. yeah. So the movie yeah. Arrival, right? That was a good movie. The context of the movie was that they're trying to understand... Did you see it? No. Okay, so the context is they're trying to understand... Uh, the language of these aliens, and it looks very strange, right? It's mm-hmm. just um, pictures, like uh, they were like circles with yeah. different little little symbols like on them, s- small little edges here or there, you know, things that make them very distinct. So I was thinking about brain imaging, MRI scans, fMRI scans, and how when you think about a particular item, uh, let's say we all think about a tree, you get a thousand people, and you take a picture of everyone thinking about a tree. After a while, you find that picture and you understand what someone is thinking. If you were to just blast them with an fMRI, you would be like, oh, that person's thinking of a tree. So my concept is, or my thought is that if they scanned enough people, that an AI would have the uh, capabilities and the speed to be like, oh, I can read your mind. Like that terrifies me as an idea. But would the AI have to be like a constant on MRI machine to be able to read your mind? Correct. It would be like someone is like, uh, let's say a criminal 
is under an MRI machine and they're like, tell us where it is. Mm. And he's just thinking about it. And then the AI is like reading his mind. What if they did it as a technology and not as a self-aware computer, just like- In general? Yeah, they program like the, a, the computer. Like an algorithm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They program the computer and understand when you're thinking of tree. So he knows this. Either way, yeah. this is totally yeah. off topic. Yeah, sorry, we, sorry. we went somewhere else here. Anyways, yeah. Yeah. AIs are, are, are terrifying. Yeah, they're terrifying. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Terminator 2 was a good movie. Yeah, it was. It was my favorite. Is it your favorite? Yes, my favorite Terminator I agree. One. It was a badass one. You find Sarah Connor in that mental asylum. It's freaking terrifying. It's good shit. So, so let's get back to you. And uh, when would you say you first, uh, you said that you had found joy in going when we were younger to raves. Mm -hmm. Where would you say, were you in college when you were like, you know what, I'm going to get in this industry? Um. Well, so I guess... I should talk about my first rave experience sure. and then into when it became a career. So my first rave experience, um, besides like random concerts, my first like underground rave experience, there were these parties that they used to throw in like deep in Bushwick called Rubalab. And they were like the type of party where you had to say a password to get in and they would like pull you in. I think I was like 15 or 16. So I was like way too young to be there, but they just didn't care. They let me in anyways. And you would walk up this like long staircase that had all these neon mannequins hanging from the ceiling and I remember the first thing I saw when I walked in was this huge like massive plate of acid dosed spaghetti Whoa. and <laughs> and it was just like uh it was just like the most like free like no law place I've ever seen like at that age especially and I wasn't even going to like see an artist or anything I just liked the parties because it was like weird and you could meet weird interesting people and everyone was just down to be friends with everyone. And there would just be like, there was like a heroin cave and like this giant fortune telling bunny on the roof. And it was just, it's very, it was like this other world, like deep in the middle of nowhere. What's a heroin city. cave? <laughs> it was basically just a little cave. And I was like, oh, what's in here? And there was a bunch of people doing heroin. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and and I was God. like, okay. <laughs> I just uh, crawled the other way. <laughs> I was like 15. And um, that was like what first kind of piqued my interest in the scene. And I didn't really, understand like the musical aspect of it yet I just understood that it was these weird gatherings where you could find people and like hear sounds that you couldn't find anywhere else um and then as I got older I started going to actual shows and we see like infected mushroom all the time right. amazing and stuff like that um so I became like a a big electronic music fan and became like my primary um I guess like preferred genre of music at the end of high school, going into college. Mm -hmm. And then... Did you ever consider producing music at the time? Yeah, I mean, I so I was a classical pianist for like 17 years. Right. So I have a very good ear for music. And even though I haven't played in a while, um, I ideally, like, I would love to be able to produce music. Um, but I also know it's incredibly time-consuming, and I'm not sure if I have that luxury right now. Um, but yeah, so I was going to like all these shows, all these raves or whatever. And when I went back to Penn State after taking a year off, I got offered a job as just a fashion writer for this site called Daily Beat. And so I was writing like a couple columns for them. And then within, I think like two or three months, I became their director of brand development. And I kind of just, it was still a side thing though, like, cause I was still in school. And I started taking it really seriously towards the end of college. Like I would study 
eight to 10 hours a day, every single day, Monday through Thursday, and then take a five hour bus every Friday to the city to go to shows, like meet industry people and just like get into the scene. And then I would take another five hour bus that Sunday and come back to school. And so I did that probably almost every weekend for about a year and a half. And then when I actually got out of college, after doing like a couple freelancing jobs for like, I guess six to eight months, um, I started working for the Marley family. Like Chadell and Rohan have this coffee and sound system company. And then that was a really awesome gig. And then a month into that- Like descendants of Bob Marley, you mean? Yeah, yeah. And then- um, Interesting. Yeah, they're super cool. (laughs) Are those his children? I don't know them by name. Yeah, so this is children. And then Zuri is his um, granddaughter. That's super cool. And so I was doing that for about a month. And then randomly, this was February 2016, I guess. They opened the U.S. headquarters for MixMag. And just like through just like the grapevine, one of my friends who was a DJ told me that they were looking for a U.S. editor Hmm. on the East Coast. And so I went in and interviewed, and then that's it, yeah. Is MixMag uh, originally from Europe? Yeah, so MixMag is originally in London. It started in print in 1983, and we're still in print and just also started printing in Japan. And so we're in 14, yeah, it's it's amazing. And we're in 14 countries now. Mm -hmm. Um, So the main global headquarters is still in London, and then the U.S. headquarters is in New York, and then we have a bunch of like smaller satellite offices around the world. That's awesome. Yeah. Are you able to go to any of those satellite offices, or are you dealing just strictly with the East Coast? Um, so I deal mostly with the U.S. The whole like, and I think with any company, they send people to travel based on necessity. So like, if we already have a team of fifty people in London, they're not going like, to send me to London right. to do a job when they already have the team there. Um, I've definitely traveled around in the U.S. though to like festivals or just to do like random events and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And I feel like in this work environment, it's like a little more casual than your normal work environment. <laughs> do you have any yeah. like crazy stories or like goofy things that you've seen at work that you would feel like could never happen in another workplace? You know. Um, so I mean, it's super casual, but at the same time, we all work incredibly hard to mm-hmm. on our on our positions or our roles. Um, I think the one thing about MixMag that that keeps it a really good company to work for is, so we have like a very serious side of the company because we know we have a responsibility as in, as arguably the biggest editorial brand in the underground music industry to talk about certain issues that are important and highlight artists that um, we think deserve attention and stuff like that. So there's that serious part of it and we also, really are aware that we have a, a big fan base of of music fans who are are really, really serious about their passion in music, not just as a hobby. So we mm-hmm. know that like we have to cater to those people. We have to talk about certain things that they'd be interested in. But there's also the really fun like party side of it where we can be a little cheeky about things and talk about some not so serious things that other editorial brands can't. Um, so the office kind of vibe day to day is more of the party fun <laughs> type things. And also we just, our teams are are very, um, like we just all work really well together. There's, there's no one in the office that like doesn't vibe with us or get along with us. And everyone that works at MixMag, the reason that they work there and the reason that they've lasted there for that long is because they're 
so passionate about music and so serious about making sure that the actual Mix Mag brand maintains its integrity. So we all have kind of this like, uh, like universal, or I guess like shared understanding that like that's why we're working so mm-hmm. hard. So even though it is a super fun office, right. we all like know that like we have to get our shit done. And if sure. we don't, if we don't do it, it's it's on us type thing. That makes sense. Uh, could you give us a a the lowdown on what happened then um, during the recent uh, and tragic uh, passing of Avicii? Sure. Um, yeah, I've. I think it's it's one of those things where it's kind of a wake up call for the industry that artists aren't machines; they're humans too. And I think a lot of people forget about that. And even though mental health is like a huge issue in dance music right now, and it's something that's trying to be talked about. I think Avicii passing away was really like, it just stunned everyone because one, he was so young. Two, like he was really sick already and he had health problems prior to taking a break from music. Mm -hmm. But he, I mean, he, I'm pretty sure they're almost positive it was a suicide. That's what I had read as well. Yeah, and it's, it's just like, it's this kid who loved music so much. He's was thrown into the spotlight without having any experience before. And they just kind of pushed him, like it kind of essentially the music industry killed him. And it's just, it's super tragic. And I think um, it kind of, I think people need to take a step back and not look at it as like, oh, this kid just like died. And it was like, just because he was overworked, it was kind of like as a culture or like as a business, how does the music industry treat and nurture their artists when you say that the the industry killed him um are you implying that it was in tangent with his own mentality and mindset and that just the pressure on one the industry put on him and two he put on himself is that what you're getting at yeah i mean well in general even like with training like the human body isn't made to physically be able to travel that much and have to perform that often, especially when the culture of like these performances are like very high energy. There's always a lot of drugs, a lot of drinking. And he, I think he was played something like over 300, like 300 shows in one year. Wow. So it's like multiple shows a day, flying multiple times a day. And it's just like, you're not, you're not supposed to be able to withstand that physically. And um, wait, what was the question? Like. <laughs> What what is it that compounded his mindset? And I guess I don't want to call it a depression because I don't know him mm-hmm. and I don't know if he was depressed. But if he, as we just said, committed suicide, then obviously he was. And he yeah. was looking for an outlet and wasn't provided with one. Uh, I remember you saying, like, could you go through what a DJ experiences when they have to travel so much for the industry? Right. So... One, just in general, as far as artists go, performance-wise, usually performances are in the day or like kind of into the night, and then that's it. Whereas when a DJ performs, a lot of times it's from like 3 a.m. to 7 a.m. So that's already a time frame where most people are sleeping. So on like an if it's a high high uh, in-demand artist who's on a heavy tour, mm-hmm. they'll be they'll fly somewhere for like whatever, how many hours. It's usually they get off the plane, go to the hotel, really don't have any time to rest. They might like get taken out to dinner or something. 
And then they have, even if they're super, super tired, they have to perform and be super high energy and have to talk to all these people. And it's just like super high stimulating atmosphere with like all the lights and the music and everyone like praising you and wanting to say hi to you. And then they return to their hotel room and it's just completely quiet. So it goes from like a high to a low. And then sometimes, or actually extremely often, DJs will have to just play a gig and then just go straight onto another flight. And then just just repeat it over and over again. And it's like their sleep cycle is completely off. A lot of times they won't sleep for days. Their diet probably isn't very well maintained because they, they're not really controlling what they're getting to eat. And it's just like so, so strenuous. And then on top of it, um, they feel like they have to like be a certain way when they're performing because they feel responsibility to their fans or to the people they're about to meet. So it's just it's like going from extreme highs to extreme lows to not sleeping to traveling to not getting to eat, not getting to exercise. And it's just like, it's incredibly hard on the human body. And a lot of DJs will do this for like months straight. And it's just like, it's it's mind blowing. And being behind the scenes, are you seeing a lot of the drug culture between like the mainstream DJs right now? And have you seen it evolve over the years? Um, yeah, I mean, drug culture is like just a huge part of the dance music industry, whether it's mainstream or underground. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, the underground scene is the drug scene's a little different just because it's people are like more into different drugs, I feel like. Like in the mainstream um, I guess like landscape, most people do like cocaine, ecstasy. Right. But it's also usually younger kids because it's people that are just getting into that type of music. So they're not like fucking with like ketamine and like GHP and stuff like that. But when you go more into like the underground scene where like one, they're like not checking bags, two everyone's not like everyone's fucked up but it's like it's acceptable to be on a lot of drugs sure. and like no one's then like it's no like one a judges you yeah it's a no judgment zone like yeah. always so um yeah the drug scene is definitely more potent in the underground scene i would say but yeah it's like in general just as a whole it's a huge part of of club culture and can i ask about your own um like drug usage over the years, how it's like affected you and how you, did you feel like you grew up with the scene and did you feel like drugs were a part of that growing up with the scene, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I, so when I first started going out to raves when I was younger, I definitely did a lot of ecstasy, <laughs> like all, like at every show I went to, like I would, sure. it was it one was of- everywhere. The, yeah, and it was like one of the like, one of the key components of planning to go to a rave it's like you buy your ticket, you buy your outfit, and then you have to go get rolls. <laughs> like it's like it was just like the package. Mm -hmm. um, and I so like it's really easy when you're doing that to to what's the word associate like drug use with going to these types of events. Um, but at the same time, I was also doing way more drugs and way heavier drugs and way more um, like addicted to the drugs that I was doing not at raves. So, like, I wasn't, I wouldn't, I would never say I was, like, addicted to ecstasy. Like, I would do it all the time, but I, it wasn't, like, I needed it every day or anything like that. Was it more like the New Jersey culture as opposed to, like, the rave culture that you felt that was perpetuating the drug use? Yeah, I mean, I think most things in life have to do with your surroundings. Um, and, of course, having friends who do a lot of drugs, um, sure. you, like, 
wanted oftentimes to do drugs too, just because you like start doing them together and then you realize how fun they are and then you just do them every weekend <laughs> and then you're like, wow, this is great. Um, but yeah, I don't, I think even if I wasn't going to electronic music events, I probably would have still would be have been doing dabble. drugs. Well, yeah. I remember uh, it was interesting for you because you were allergic to alcohol. Are you still allergic to alcohol? That was a thing, right? Yeah, I mean, I would drink? assume so. Yeah. Um, I have, I've been sober for almost seven years now, so nice. I haven't tried <laughs> drinking alcohol <laughs> since, since then too. anyways. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm still very, very allergic to it. And do you think that definitely like had a, why you were looking to be like messed up or like get a little drugged out with people or do you think that wasn't as relevant? Oh no, yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, cause when everyone started drinking, when we were like young, we were like 12 and 13, and I realized I couldn't drink, I would just be like, oh man, like everyone's drinking and I can't <laughs> do it. And I would, I would feel like, not left out, but like you just like want to get fucked up with your friends. You know right. what I mean? Especially when like you're young and like it's when you're first like getting into that, it's like you want to be able to experience it and like learn about it mm-hmm. together with with the people you're always hanging out How long out with. did it make you to make like that disconnect where you were like, all right, I can't get fucked up with my friends, they're all drinking, mm-hmm. but now I can try this? Um, well, I started, let me think. The first time I tried alcohol, I was like to actually get fucked up. I think I was in sixth grade and I remember bursting into hives and like not oh being able God. to breathe. And I was like, oh man, being drunk sucks. <laughs> I was like, this is like, why, like, why would I do this all the time? And like, I even like drank like probably like four or five times after that before I like made the connection that like that was not like the vibe for everyone else. <laughs> um, but I was also, I also around that time started smoking weed too. So I smoked a lot of weed at first. And then I think when I was like 14 or 15, I started experimenting with pills. And then once I realized, I think I probably realized like the first or second time that I took like Xanax and stuff that it was very similar to like how other people wore when they were drunk. So whenever we would go out to parties and everyone was drinking, I would just take a couple bars because mm-hmm. it was just like, it was just my version of what they were doing. Um, and yeah, and then it just turned into after maybe like a year or two of doing that almost every weekend, then it became more of like an addiction thing where I was doing them like much more often. Yeah, that's yeah. A, it's a steep slope to go down and it's it's. Oh, yeah, and your tolerance builds so fast and you like don't exactly. realize that you just like are doing way more than like people are prescribed right. and stuff like that. And our call, I mean, and also, I mean, I just remember high school, they were everywhere. People were popping pills left and right. It was, it was almost too easy to get them. It felt like. Yeah. It and like also it's just, them. especially I think in our area, especially cause I, I thought growing up that our area that we grew up in, like the amount of drugs we were doing and like how we did drugs was just the standard way. Like I just thought everyone did right. that and like to, on some level. And when all. I got to college, yeah. I realized like, it wasn't at I, all. I had the same revelation in college. I was like, I was so, like, it was so confusing for me at first. Like, people thought I was crazy. Right. Like, people thought I was just, like, the craziest person. And I remember, like, getting kicked out of my sorority and, like, my roommate, like, freaking out when she saw me do drugs, like, the first time. We were, it's probably one of the first nights we were at school. Um, but I think a lot of that has to just do with the fact, like, where we grew up, if you put it, like, if you think about, like, the combination of things, like, one, People have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Two, drugs are super accessible because it's right near the city. 
Um, and there's, it's like a bunch of young kids getting into drugs and excited about drugs. And so it's like you have these like teens who have a lot of money to spend money on drugs. The drugs are very prevalent in the area. And also because the people that live there are very well off, they also kind of have in the back of their head that they know that like if they really get in trouble, like with the law or something, that like it's not going to be that big of an issue. So it's like no sense of consequence it's either. Total so, recipe for disaster. Yeah. So it's yeah. just like it's it's a no brainer that so many people from our area develop drug problems. Yeah. I mean, how many friends have we had that have gone to rehab, have been through addiction? It's it's insane. Yeah. Yeah, a lot. I uh, I'd like for you to give us uh, the moment when you realize like. Either one, I have an issue with drugs, or two, like <laughs> someone telling you, like, "Hey, Sydney, like, hold on." Yeah. Um, so when I first went to rehab after I got arrested, I didn't go because I actually like wanted to go to rehab. I went because I knew if I had finished a program before my first court hearing, the judge would have been way more lenient on me. So like that was my original plan. And then once I actually got to rehab and like started like talking to everyone there and like being like involved in the actual program I I realized more that I had a problem and I also realized how my how much more severe my use was than I thought it was like I thought popping like 10 bars a day or more was like a very like standard thing to do for people using or like abusing Xanax or whatever um and then once I start especially like the older people they like when I had to tell my stories about, like there was one day we had to do a couple, we had to tell a couple like really bad things that happened to us and then like good things that happened to us like after sobriety. And I remember when I told the bad things, they were like, they thought I was literally like out of my mind. And I was like, oh, I thought this was like a very normal occurrence for everyone. Right. And then also just meeting so many people that were all like so different, like in age and profession or like background, and but they were all like struggling with the, the same I guess with addiction, it like really opened my eyes to how, um, I guess how like easy it is for people to get addicted to things. And I think after like probably a week or two of actually being in a program, I realized like, oh wait, like I actually have a problem. This isn't just me. Like, like I I thought I was casually using drugs right. for like four years when I like totally, <laughs> it was like not mild in any way. I feel like, like you just said 10 bars a day, which sounds like insane to me. Uh, do, have, a serious question have you had any like medical issues you found out later on from like a heavy usage or it... yeah, um yeah well so i like 10 bars a day is we like some days we do 10 I, the most i've ever taken in one day was probably like 20 <sighs> like i would when at the like at the end of it i would literally like i would pop like three or four at a time and then I guess you were just getting used to popping so many. Yeah, so I mean, my tolerance yeah. from taking Xanax every day, like abusing Xanax every day for like four years straight, you, it's like your tolerance gets so high. And I would like pop a bunch and then I would throw up and then I'd like be in my head oh. like, oh, like the Xanax is out of my system. Like I need to take more. So I would just like take oh. more and more. And it was just like this cycle of me just like popping bars and like getting sick. And I, I, would, I wouldn't say it's like an overdose, but like very, very often because I would take so much, I would just like be completely unconscious for like days at a time and just be like completely blacked out for like days at a time. That's horrifying. When you say yeah. unconscious and blacked out, like you're still moving around doing things? No, like, like, like bedridden? Um, not like, I, like, 
I sh- my friends probably should have a couple of times taken me to the hospital, but instead wow. they just like let me sleep like it sleep it. Like there was I think one time because this was at school. It was like the first time my best friend in my dorm like saw me like that bad or whatever, and she said that she was trying to wake me up. And I like wouldn't wake up, and she said that she literally threw a textbook at my head because she was like trying so hard to wake me up because she was like scared that I wasn't yeah. waking up, and I like still didn't wake up. So like those types of things, when you're like in that state, it's obviously not good for your brain. Yeah. And so doing that for so long, I definitely, I mean, it's gotten better, but I definitely, my, I guess like capacity f- for attention, and I wouldn't say like long-term thinking that's not the word but like I can feel that my mind or like my brain I guess is not the way it used to be when like I you was don't younger. feel as clear as you you think you yeah like, I mean I was like a very I was like a super super smart kid I like got I think I got like the highest I got like an award for like the highest score on a Terra Nova test mm-hmm. in on like the east coast when I was in like That's third grade. That's awesome. What's a Terra Nova test? It's like, it's one of those it's like, like standardized, standardized tests, yeah. gotcha. but it's like a little kid's standardized test. And yeah. um, That's awesome. Yeah. And I was like, I was supposed to skip like two grades. I was like in all the gifted and talented wow. programs. Um, and I, was, I mean, like I've, I still think I'm smart, but like I was like super just like sharp and intelligent. And like, I was like a very, I was just like considered like one of the genius kids in the school right. and then you may have been a genius now you're just a normal human <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm just tasty feeds um, <laughs> and yeah now like there's uh, there's a lot of times where i'll be like trying to read something or like trying to understand something and in my head i'll like be reading it and i'll like know that i should understand it or like be able to comprehend it but like it's just not like clicking not sinking yeah, yeah and it's just, it's it's mostly just like attention span and like, I think it's short-term memory, right? Not long-term yeah, memory. Yeah. yeah, like if they, there's like 10 sentences and you have to read all 10 to understand the concept. There's so many times where like by like the fourth or fifth one, I've already forgotten what the first were. So like I have to go back and do it again. And like it happens a lot when I'm like speaking to, I'll just like forget mid-thought what I was even doing. Um, so that gets pretty frustrating. And it's definitely frustrating because I know it's like my fault that that's happening <laughs> because of what I did when I was younger. Um, but so, yeah. So you're not doing drugs anymore. You've been sober for seven years. Yeah. How does it feel working in a um, a scene that is connected to a culture of drugs? When you see people, like, what, what do you see? What do you think when you see people on drugs and they yeah. look like they're one either really really fucked up mm-hmm. or two, you know? Just like taking drugs and you're like, I fucking know you're on drugs. Look at you. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't, it's so interesting because a lot of people like think it would be really hard to stay sober in a scene that drugs are like so, so, so prevalent. Like I'm not going to like say certain instances because I don't want to get anyone in trouble. But like it's like it's for especially if like you don't work in this industry, it's like mind blowing like how accepted it is just do drugs like anytime mm-hmm. like it just like completely out in the open um and a lot of people think it would be hard for someone who's a recovering addict to be in that scene but for me at least maybe for other people it is i'm sure for other people it is hard but for me at least music is what keeps me sober so like a lot of times when you're in recovery people like will get like hobbies or 
even like new like obsessions because they need something to take up all the time because when you're actively using like and you're if you're really bad like you're thinking about drugs all the time or you're thinking about like where you're going to buy drugs when you're going to do them or like when's the next time you're going to do them and it takes up so much of your day and takes up so much of your energy then when you become sober you have all this free time and you're like well, what do I do now and I'm incredibly blessed that very shortly after um starting to get clean I realized that like music was something that I was so passionate about and loved so much that I could use my time and energy like filled out my time and energy with that um so yeah why I like going to shows and being in these like high stimulation atmospheres is what keeps me sober because I love music so much and like it makes me so so happy and so like excited that when I'm at these um, these events and like I'm seeing DJs that I love and like hearing music that I love that it gives me it like literally gives me a high and it, it makes me remember that I can feel that way without drugs um, that's awesome that's so great that you're able to have yeah that. I mean it's it's funny that like people all the time ask me if I'm fucked up at or like think I'm like fucked up or, like on so many drugs like when we're at shows because like I'm just like the second I walk into a club or a venue like I'm so happy like I'm just like so excited about everything and like I feel like I don't feel like fucked up like or like blacked out or anything but I feel like wavy and like groovy and like mm, I'm just groovy. like everything's like more lovely and like happy and like it, everything makes me like smile more than it would usually and there's so there's definitely a vibe in those rooms yeah it's especially like there's some clubs where like the second I walk in like I don't stop moving till like I leave like even if I'm like have to like look something up on my phone or like have a conversation with someone I'm still like we well, can't see what I'm doing I guess <laughs> on the podcast but I'm like just like consistently dancing and being in those environments and like going to those every weekend really helps me stay sober and I think if I not that I'm like addicted to going to shows but like I definitely like if I don't go for a while like even just like two weekends I like feel like I need to go to one to like um yeah. Are are you also going to NA meetings or anything like that, or you don't do those? No, I mean, there's some people who, like, really, really need meetings mm -hmm. um, and need to go, like, every day to stay clean. Um, and especially, like, when they first start off, they do, like, a 90 and 90 thing where you have to go to a meeting every day for 90 days. Um, and I've been to meetings, and they're really, really awesome, and you meet incredible people and get to talk about things that you maybe wouldn't usually get to talk about with other people. Um, but I am the type of person that I didn't need meetings to stay clean. I've probably been to like four or five, like all together, like entirely. Um, I, when I first got clean after I got out of rehab, I basically like changed my phone number, deleted all my social media and just locked myself in my house for eight months straight basically and didn't leave at all except to go to the gym once a day and I think for me that like time period of re-evaluating myself and like I guess rediscovering myself is was like very crucial to me getting clean um, when so, yeah. you see people that are at uh, concerts or, or raves or whatever do you see reflections of yourself in people who do drugs not really I mean it's also like Every, especially because it's like it's dark and there's a lot of lights and the music is so loud and there's so many people and it's such high energy you don't really like unless someone's like really really fucked up like you don't really notice what about behind like, the scenes singularly when you're, the, when you're in the green room like people that you may 
uh, work in tangent with or something when you're not actually out on the dance floor. Mm-hmm. Or the DJs that you highly respect that you've seen really yeah. fucked up. That you talk to after the show and you're like, wait a second, you're really <laughs> fucked up. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think people would be surprised to know that, one, a lot of DJs are clean, especially DJs that have had, or artists that have had really, really long, successful careers. It's like when you're living that life, you learn very fast, like you can't do an insane amount of drugs every night. Like you're just, it's, you're not gonna last, like there's no way. And so there's a lot of really successful DJs that are clean and take health super seriously because they know if they don't, they're not gonna be able to do what they do. Um, Would you say it's a majority of mainstream DJs that are clean or uh, you can't really quantify? Um, no, I don't know if, I wouldn't say majority, but I think more than people would expect. Would expect, or? yeah. I wanted to talk about your, um, cause we, we touched upon DJs not really having a sleep schedule, not really having uh, a diet plan. They're kind of just, they eat the food that's around them. Do you have a sleep schedule? Cause you're out at these parties really late every weekend. Yeah. During the week, are you also up really late? No. So I've found out the hard way that I cannot go out on weekdays and go to work the next day and be like at a hundred percent. Um, even if I literally just go to like a bar for an hour to meet up with friends at like 9 p.m., if I like go out in any aspect, I will not like be okay when I wake up in the morning. I just feel, I don't feel the same energy. And I, I get so guilty when I go to work and know that like I didn't do my best. Um, so yeah, my actual, like I feel like people think I live this like really weird, crazy life. And like my, it's like really just, I wake up, I go to work, I come home. I eat, I take a 45 minute nap, I go to the gym, I come home, I shower, and then I sleep. And that's like basically what I do Monday through Thursday, every day, like I'm a very like routine based person. You can every day of the week manage a 45 minute nap and then work out, so yeah, that's I also, literally unbelievable to me. I'm also kind of like OCD with like, I time every single thing I do. Like I love oh. timing what I do. <laughs> Because one, it makes you do things faster because you're like, oh, I got to beat the clock. And two, it's just like, I like knowing how long things take. And it sounds kind of, um, I guess, crazy, but I basically plan every hour of my day, every day. And it usually doesn't deviate any more than like 10 or 15 minutes each way. Wow. And like, I keep to that schedule. Um, Is it it on a phone plan or it written out like in Oh, it's just in my head. That's really incredible. (laughs) Yeah, and so, like, um, but the, also the bad thing about that is, like, if something comes up, it, like, fucks everything up. And, no, then, no. and then, like, I hate, like, that I have to, like, either skip the gym or, like, not be able to nap or, like, not be able to eat. Like, it's so strict that I literally, this might sound kind of gross, but it's so strict that I literally go to the bathroom at the same time every single day. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, it's, it's I, don't, I don't know how that's Do you feel is. that you need that structure in your life? Like Yeah, 100%. I'm, like, yeah. very, like, like if I didn't, then I just, like, wouldn't get the things done that I need to get done. Um, Did you coming on this podcast fuck everything up for your day? Kind of. <laughs> is the 12 o'clock poop going to be made? <laughs> I was like, it didn't fuck up my day because I planned for didn't it. But, but Thanks. I would have been doing other specific things if I wasn't here right now. But it's okay. I could just do them later. Cool. Yeah. So then what is your weekend like, right? That's Monday to Thursday? Yeah, so typically on Friday. So Mag does a thing called The Lab every Friday. Um, it's our, like, after-work party. Uh, it's We do it in New York, London, L.A., and twice a month in Australia. So we do it once a week in those first three cities. 
and then twice a month in Australia and it's every Friday. And so Fridays are definitely like the hardest days for me because I wake up around 8.30 to go to work and the work day ends around six, but the lab is in the office. And so I basically work from eight or from like 10 p.m. or 10 a.m., sorry, to around 11 p.m. on Fridays straight. And then Brutal. I come home and then I usually go out. Um, so on Fridays especially, typically I'm like awake for 25 to 26 hours straight between when I leave for work and when I come home from going out afterwards. That's absolutely nut. And then how does your Saturday go after that? You're not absolutely destroyed? No, I mean, so I drink a lot of Red Bull and Red Bull hangovers are like a super real thing. <laughs> and I don't think people know that, but it's like, cause there's just, I also don't eat sugar except Red Bull. So it's like this insane amount of sugar just being like surged into your body in such a short amount of time. Plus like all the cigarettes I smoke. And so like the next morning I definitely like, I wouldn't say it's like as bad as a bad hangover, but it's pretty dry. And like you just feel like a shriveled up little bean. Like, did you hear my voice when you called me this morning? Yeah. Like I was like, hello. Like that's literally just like how my voice comes out. Um, but I usually sleep to like, I try to sleep in just cause I like that I can sleep in on weekends cause I can on weekdays. Um, to probably like one or two and then I'll, go to the gym and then do like work. I'm up till 3 a.m. and like one or two is like when I wake up from that but not after a whole fucking 24 hours yeah and done. it's usually like this weekend was and I should have prepped because next week I'm going to Detroit and I know I'm not going to get a lot of sleep but it was like Friday I was up for 25 hours straight and then I got three hours of sleep and then I woke up at noon Saturday and then partied all day till Sunday morning at 6 a.m. Went to bed at 8 a.m. Oh, wait. No, went to bed at 6 a.m. We'll go at 9 a.m. Now I'm here. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, thanks for making the time. But uh, where, where are we going next? You know, what is the plan for you? You're working with Mix Mag. You're the East Coast editor. U.S. Digital Content Editor. Oh, my God. U.S. Digital Content Editor. So <laughs> fucked up, <laughs> Kyle. It's been like 30 minutes, dude. Literally. She explained it. So where's the, where's the next step? Like... Career-wise? Yeah, what what do you want to Career see yourself wise, life building yeah. MixMag into, you know? Yeah, I mean, for one, like, I don't see myself leaving MixMag very soon. Is there a position um, at MixMag that you would ideally like to hold? Covet? I mean, I don't know, it's confusing because, like, when I got hired for MixMag, they were originally, I was originally interviewing for the East Coast editor, and when they met me and, like, they looked at my skills and my experience, they created my role for me. So there's not like a clear, I guess, like hierarchy of like where it goes. And now I, I don't even do really what I originally was doing. Um, like I was originally writing a lot and doing social media. And then like last year we needed this video edited for a client and my boss was like, who can do it? And I just raised my hand and I was like, I'll do it. But I was completely lying. And I had like no idea how to use <laughs> video, like editing programs at all. Like I couldn't, I didn't even know how to like open Premiere. And then I, like, I literally was like, I don't even know how to start a Premiere project. And then that weekend they were like needed it the next week. And that weekend I just watched a bunch of YouTube videos. And my friend Kiara, who's a really um, talented video editor showed me a couple things. See, you are and smart, Sydney. You don't gotta <laughs> sell yourself short. Maybe. And Check then I like out. basically faked like knowing how to do video editing. And then 
over time I just got better and better. And now I'm like one of the top video editors at the co at the company. That's sick. Um, so I would like to do. I mean, I don't know how to use a camera still, which is like a huge part of like being on the video team. So once I learn that, like I would love to work more on like actually like filming and directing and like producing like pieces of like a documentary pieces and stuff like all to get like in full. If like that makes like sense. in your head, do you have an idea where you'd want to document like the current state of the industry or maybe document an interesting artist specifically mm -hmm. in the industry, like his journey or something like that? Um, well, so we recently did this thing called Global Dance Floor, which was a series of nine documentaries in nine different countries around the world where we explored like the underground music scene of those specific countries. Um, but it was only nine. So I would like love to do something like that where we where like it's an extension of that where mm -hmm. it's like even like more in-depth features um, and just being able to see the scene around. Because it's so, it's crazy how different and I mean, obviously foreign, because it's a foreign country, but like it's crazy how different the scenes are um, of all, like around the world, even though it's like the same music. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really interesting. Your parents are like, were you born in, in America? Yeah. Your parents were not born in America, no. correct? Well, have you, they're from China? Yeah, well, so I'm fifth generation on my dad's side. Mm -hmm. But on my mom's side, like my mom was born in China and then came here when she was younger. Have you visited family there or seen, my real question is, have you seen the electric dance scene there and how does it compare? How's um, it different? No, I haven't, but we actually did just live stream this DJ named Nina Kravitz from the Great Wall of China yesterday. That's Whoa. sick. Like, which is crazy. It's just like, they're throwing a festival in the Great Wall of China and we live streamed it around the world. Like it's blowing my mind, but... I mean, I've heard that maybe, I mean, we do have a mixed mag China, so there's a scene there. It's definitely different. Um, but I know in like other Asian countries, it's the scene is a lot bigger and it's a lot less um, like underground. So it has room to grow more. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure in China, it's very um, like it's a little more suppressed and like not as accepted. Right. Don't fact check me on that. But I'm so like it's because it has to be so kind of hidden like it's it's harder to, to grow as a culture. Whereas in other parts of Asia, it's more accepted. So the scenes are like more thriving, I guess, similar to here. Interesting. And I guess we're about to wrap this up, but I do want to ask kind of a final question. If you had any advice that you'd want to give any, somebody who'd want to get their start in this industry? Um, one, so like when I first got started in the industry and like got my first job and stuff, it was just from knowing people. Um, it wasn't, I mean, it was partially because of my credentials and stuff, but it was because I knew someone in the scene that like connected me with whoever. So I think one of the biggest things, and this is how like I got, I guess got into it, is that like going out all the time, and like meeting as many people as you can, like talk to, every single person, like you never know who is standing next to you that could be someone that could help you out later. So like when I said before earlier, when I was like going into the city from Penn State, like mm -hmm. every weekend, like I would just meet as many people as I could and like talk to as many people as I could and like growing your network. And has that network prevailed till today, you feel like? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, it's funny because a lot of people that like, I, when I was getting into this music scene, they were also getting into this music scene and we're the same age and like, we've like grown together in the scene. And it's like been very interesting that like my like core group of 
people that I knew starting are now like kind of like the people that are like now traveling the world and like having an actual say in like what's going on and stuff. Um, and then also just like, it's an incredibly exhausting and fast paced industry, but it's also if you truly love it and you're truly passionate about it, like it's worth it and it doesn't feel like work, but it's definitely something to understand that it's it's not easy at all to to work in this scene. Like it's definitely very demanding and you have to take it really seriously. And if it's just like a side thing for you, you probably won't last that long. Right on, Sydney. Thank you. We yeah. really appreciate having you oh, on. You're that was good advice. Thanks. That was. <laughs> well, guys, thank you for joining us for another episode on the Disconnection Podcast, where we aim to inform, inspire, and close the disconnections in your life. We'd like to thank our guests for joining us today, Sydney Zhao, and delivering a unique perspective on a range of topics. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, and the podcast app. My name is Kyle. I've been Ben. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Disconnection. Disconnection. <laughs> I like that. That's good. I like that little pie. Yeah, I liked it too. And that's the show. Yay! And that's the show. Yay! Ooh, thank you, Ooh, Sydney. Yeah.